Welcome to episode 167, The Art of Confrontation, Challenging Clients Effectively, featuring Elizabeth Haney, Licensed Professional Counselor. Make sure to subscribe to be alerted about future episodes by Clearly Clinical. Learn, grow, shine. our listeners. My name is Beth Irias, and today we are going to be talking about confrontation, uh, a topic that can be uncomfortable for some, um, delightful for others. And today I'm excited to have our guest, Elizabeth Haney, joining me. Um, She has spent decades in this field, and she is a licensed clinical mental health counselor in Asheville, North Carolina. And she has been doing case consultation and clinical training for a very long time and is just really interested in the topic of confrontation and therapy. So we're going to be talking about it today. Uh, thank you so much for joining us, Elizabeth. Oh, thank you for having me. It's uh, This is a topic that I really uh, enjoy talking with therapists about. I really like getting them interested in the idea of using confrontation as part of their clinical work. So for our listeners, why don't you take a moment and tell us more about your background? And I mean, you kind of just covered a little bit, but why, why have this conversation about confrontation? And we'll kind of just start there. So there's a, um, a couple of things that I think are pertinent to the conversation. I do a lot of teaching and training and consultations for therapists. And it's an area that I find therapists don't have a lot of familiarity with. They typically didn't get a lot of training with it. I know in my own practice, I do a lot of work with couples. About half of my practice is working with couples. So working well with confrontation and bringing confrontation into the therapeutic relationship is sometimes really crucial. Like there's a lot going on, there's a lot of complexity. And I do sometimes have to really confront and challenge clients, so that's useful. Another population I've worked with a lot are military uh, veterans. That's another population that tends to present in ways where confrontation needs to be super direct and super clear. Um, Because of, of that culture, they're used to very, very direct communication. And I needed, when I started working with them, I needed to learn to step up and have that kind of directness. And it enhanced my practice tremendously. So I've put together workshops uh, that I videotaped for therapists. They're at my website, which is haneyconsulting.net. And be careful with that .net, not .com. So one of the workshops that I videotaped is on confronting clients. There's also videotapes on working with relationships, working with um, your own process as part of therapy. So that's something people might want to check out. Thank you. Um, This, as we're talking about it, I remember early in my training doing um, therapist development center for my licensing exam, which is a, an exam prep company. And the clinician who started it, Amanda Rowan, is discussing clinical exams. And she gives this example where there's an intervention that says therapist confronted client, blah, blah, blah. And she said, you know, for those of you who hear the word confronted, I want to remind you, like, this is a clinical confrontation. This is not hands on your hips, getting in somebody's face, you know, spittle flying out of the sides of your mouth. Like, this is part of a kind of a therapeutic confrontation or therapeutic confrontation. And so when you hear that word, I, she said, I want to kind of take away the maybe implication that's come with it otherwise and to view this as a clinical tool. 
And it was the first time that I'd really heard somebody talk about it in that way, because just the word confront, like if we say, yeah, and I confronted him, like it usually implies this really intense, almost potentially like verbally assaultive or violent process. Um, Talk to me about how you see the word confrontation. Why don't we start there of like, what is a confrontation? And then we'll just go off from there. Well, that's part of the growth, isn't it, Beth, is to stop thinking of confrontation as that kind of aggressive, you know, uh, maybe way too intense uh, conversation. But I think of confrontation, actually, we could use the word challenge, that I'm challenging clients. I actually, in my clinical work, I think of it as invitation. I'm inviting them to take a look at what they just said or some behavior they just expressed or something like that. I'm, it's an invitation. Now it's a very direct invitation maybe, but it's an invitation. I'm inviting them to get to know themselves in a slightly different way, maybe to face themselves in a slightly different way. So I think the power of confrontation doesn't come from the aggressiveness of it, but comes from the accuracy of it. So if if what I'm confronting them about is really accurate, I don't need to be very aggressive and pushy and, you know, assertive and raise my voice. I don't need all that. I can actually very quietly say, that's not what you've said before. And all I'm doing is saying, huh, before you've said something different, now you're saying this, let's take a look at that, right? So I think it's crucial for clinicians to understand the power of a confrontation comes from the truth of it, the accuracy of it. You don't have to put a lot of push in it. Now, you may have to hold really steady because there may be pushback. There often is. And to me, that's just reasonable and healthy and natural that there's some pushback because someone's struggling with seeing something about themselves. So I want to have all kinds of room for them to resist argue, say it's not true. That's To me, that's all still part of healthy confrontation. I'm giving them the room to come into a larger awareness of themselves, right? And my own steadiness with their resistance to the confrontation is part of what contributes to that. You know, when you think about it, most of us did not have good training with confrontation. Our parents either, maybe confrontation came out as criticism, you know, and we were just like maybe relentlessly criticized. That's not really confrontation. Or maybe confrontation was completely avoided. And there's some, I think, real disconnect there. You know, people didn't stay close enough so that we could develop our skills with confrontation. So if you want to look at it more sort of psychodynamically, I'm giving them the opportunity to learn about confrontation in a much healthier way, both in how I present it and also how I tolerate and support their reaction to it. So I don't need my clients to see things my way. I don't need that. That's not what this is about. I want to offer them the opportunity to see themselves in a larger way. And I'm perfectly fine if they decline that invitation. That's fine. We'll come back to it later or I'll look at it a different way or something like that. But in terms of their own sense of self, like they can decline that invitation. They can say, no, I I don't think that's true or no, that's not what I was doing. And I think, okay, 
You know, I don't have an agenda that they agree with me at all, ever. I want to go back to one of the things you said that really stood out to me, which was this therapist role being twofold when it comes to challenging clients or confronting clients. That number one, it's inviting a client into a different perspective. And number two, allowing their dissent. And to highlight what you had just said a moment ago, that I mean, it sounds like basically you're viewing it like you don't have any skin in the game. You don't need to be right. This isn't about your correctness. This is about the client's lived experience and an alternative perspective and whether or not the client sees it that way or doesn't now or ever. Exactly it. It's It has to be neutral from my side because when they uh, accept or integrate that that confrontation, it has to be because they reckoned with it and are coming to terms with it, not because I pushed it. You see, that's a, that is a critical difference. I can push people to accept what I'm saying, but there's not much growth in that. There is so much growth in them being able to wrestle with it, disagree with it, uh, bring it up the next session, uh, come at it a different, that's their growth right there. So if I'm being too pushy and I need to be right about it, I've just taken all that growth off the table. So I have to be very comfortable in myself with their reactivity. And I think therapists have a lot of work to do there, right? So how do I handle someone disagreeing with my brilliant input? <laughs> you know, <laughs> how do I stay really quiet and steady in myself while they need to argue with me sometimes, right? While they need to push back. I want to support them pushing back. That may be, I mean, I'm just making this up. That may be exactly the thing they never got to do as kids, right? They never got to argue with mom or dad's criticism or input or confrontation. They didn't get to sort it out for themselves. So now look at that big work we're doing, right? It's not about this exact observation. Now I'm supporting them to really try to figure out where to stand in themselves when they get confronted and when some new information is coming in that's distressing. I really want to be available to that. And if I need to be right, I've, I've just shut that down. As you're talking about it, I'm hearing a lot of overlap too with motivational interviewing in this idea that when we go what I call power over, we are effectively silencing and preventing any change or adaptation or growth because it's no longer about somebody else. It's about what we say they should do. And I'm reminded of an interview we did with um, Stephen Andrew, where he he calls it the violence of advice, where it's like, you you need to listen to this, you have to hear this, and then it becomes this power struggle. And I think that's probably what a lot of clinicians are afraid of, where it's like, well, if I bring up the thing that like, you keep doing this one thing, then I'm trying so hard to convince them of that thing. And then we be, you know, we get locked in into this power struggle. And I think that's where clinicians get um, can get really afraid of this idea of a confrontation. I agree. And I feel like then in those places where there's a power struggle as the therapist, I need to be fully responsible for that. If that gets set up, it's on me, right? Because how do I need to teach myself how to challenge a client without triggering a power struggle. So there's some complexity there, but it's important. That's an important skill. And I can be very strong in my confrontation, very direct, you know, very um, precise. 
in my confrontation to a client and still be not in a power struggle with them. Now, it takes some practice to teach ourselves to do that, but that's what we need to aim for, right? And what I find actually is clients really appreciate that kind of direct confrontation because it gives them a way to really try something on, you know? Oh, you said you you told your wife such and such. That doesn't seem like that was an honest statement, is it? And just giving them room to like stop and face the fact that they told their wife something that actually was not honest at all. I don't have any skin in the game. I'm just letting them wrestle with it themselves. Oh, right. I did tell her that it wasn't honest. And then we can move to, so what was going on for you with that? What was happening there? It's not like you're being bad because you did that. It's just, ah, that's an interesting moment. That's an interesting awareness of yourself. Let's catch that. So if I have my own agenda, I need to show them how savvy I am, or I need to show them, you know, it's all about my clinical skills or something like that. I've skewed that whole interaction. So Two things I'm thinking of in in this conversation. One is like how to be very direct and neutral. And the second one, how how to really teach myself to tolerate the pushback that's often going to come when I'm challenging a client. How to tolerate that in a very clean way, right? I sometimes will say to clients, (laughs) this is sort of funny, but I'll sometimes say to them, listen, I'm going to sleep great tonight whether you, you know... uh, say I'm right or not, like that's okay. I'm I'm going to be fine. I'm just bringing this up because I think it's important to look at. So I'm giving them full permission, and that's when I see things change the most. To be honest with you, because I'm giving them all kinds of room there to wrestle with it themselves. You had said that you feel like training programs don't really train this. You know, even thinking back to my education. We were theory focused, and so we discuss things like Mnuchin or, you know, what is person centered therapy, let's say. And so we have these really adherent theoretical models that continue to be taught to this day that have their place in psychotherapy. But really, as I think back on it, it was rare that there was a conversation about dissent, about confrontation, about um, challenge. Why do you think that is? I mean, is is it essentially a misreading of person-centered therapy? Like, <laughs> what is it? So I, I taught in graduate counseling programs for over 20 years. And what I saw was a profound lack of training. And I, I was also an internship supervisor. So I just didn't see uh, beginning students engaged about challenging clients or confronting, the the focus is very heavily on being supportive and validating. And those are great skills. Those are super critical. But I feel like it's just part of the story. So I feel like training programs sort of drop out the confrontational piece because they're nervous. It's a complex thing to understand. And they're nervous about really putting that in therapist hands early on. But I think, you know, given the right training, it would be a great skill for therapists to have early on um, because they default into, you know, being supportive and validating and encouraging. And again, I think that's great and fine and really important, but it's only part of the story. So 
when I'm doing case consultation for therapists, I'm often scanning for where could they learn more about challenge? Where could they bring that more into the interactions they're having? Um, not that that should be the only thing they do, but it shouldn't be left out. Um, I think theoretically, the, the field sort of moved more into technique-driven modalities, uh, briefer modalities. And so this relational piece is easy to drop out when you're working in modalities that are more technique-driven or uh, sort of, um, you know, bullet point-driven. Here's, you know, client says this, you do this, this, and this. That, to, this is, to me, so squarely a relational part of working with a client. And I do think that gets less and less attention in our field these days. You know, I was trained very much in a psychodynamic, uh, person-centered uh, model. So my training was that it was all about the relationship. And then I can add in techniques as I find them useful. But I, that was the foundation for me. And I just, I in the programs I've taught in and, and things that I've seen as an internship supervisor, that piece is not addressed as much, you know? I'm very aware because of my training of the possibility that the relationship with me, if I handle it well, can be very reparative for a client. And so I'm, I'm aware of that with all the work that I'm doing. And I really wanna bring that to the forefront. Um, and I just don't see that focused on as much anymore. I don't know about you, but I, I, I just don't see it. Well, and I think it's also, I think we have a lot of fear, you know, I think many of us know the research that if a client drops out of therapy, they're much less likely to ever go to therapy again. You know, if we're paying attention to feedback informed treatment and the research there, especially in the very beginning, things are very delicate. And if we aren't solidly in relationship with one another, if we don't really invest in that process, then we are much less likely to help the client achieve whatever it is, you know, symptom reduction, communication improvement, whatever it is that they're working on. And I think that makes us uneasy. Um, and I, I'm appreciating what you said just about the opportunity for repair because so often confrontation or, you know, can be in various family systems. Oh, well, we don't talk about that. Or confrontation is things are being thrown around the room and somebody might get hurt, or there's there are substances involved, or there was the threat of somebody leaving, and that we have all this different relationship with confrontation. So not just what the client's relationship is with it, but then what our relationship with it as a human can be. Um, and you had said something before we started recording, which was, you know, basically confrontation is part of any normal, healthy relationships. So why shouldn't it be part of therapy? Um, especially if we're trying to create, um, I don't know, almost optimal soil, fertile soil for relationship building in the therapy room, the microcosm, macrocosm phenomenon to allow it to grow outside of the therapy room. How do you believe clinicians become more comfortable with this idea of not just confronting a client, but their own awareness of like, oh, this is what happens in my body when someone disagrees with me. <laughs> Beautiful that you're bringing that up, Beth, because um, their ability to track their own discomfort or resistance or awkwardness with confrontation, probably related to how confrontation happened in their family history, 
is really important. And so to me, the the bigger picture is confrontation is part of authentic relationship, period. It is. So rather than try to avoid it or make everything what I call nicey-nice, let's learn how to do it really well with our clients and also within ourselves. So I do have to look at my own discomfort with challenging somebody and frankly, intentionally making them uncomfortable sometimes, right? So if I think my role is to like soothe them and make them comfortable and all that kind of thing, I'm leaving out the part where sometimes discomfort is a part of growth. It is a, it is a normal part of growth. And so I do have to bring discomfort into our relationship sometimes, into the therapeutic relationship. And if I want to do that well, I have to do my homework with my own discomfort with making someone uncomfortable or challenging them or facing their pushback or, you know, I have to do my homework so that I'm able to stay clear and what I call clean in that interaction. That's when it becomes reparative for them. If you want to think of it very psychodynamically, I got to do the the work that mom and dad never did with them, which is to work on my own stuff first and get really clear about it so that when I bring it into the relationship, I'm in a clean place with it. So the possibility is that we can have a very clean, direct, frank interaction that it that and then my client gets to learn in themselves that confrontation is a normal part of authentic relationship. It's not something to be avoided. It's not something to be afraid of. And I want to help them learn like you can tolerate this. This is okay. Like nothing terrible is happening. We're just challenging each other here. You know, I want them to feel that in their body. Oh, oh, you're saying something important here. Yes, right. Let's slow down. It's uncomfortable right now. Let's let's keep looking at this. So I'm literally teaching them moment to moment how to tolerate that in their own body, in their own nervous system. Here's the one more layer of that that just popped into my head that I want to say is like, so now they're learning how to self-confront, right? Which is the best. So I don't necessarily want to to help them get reliant on somebody else confronting them for them to sort of stay as true to themselves as possible. I want to actually help them learn how to confront themselves. But my the the more cleanly I confront them, the better they're going to learn to confront themselves. One of my mentors used to say, you know, we want to help people stop buying their own bullshit, their own bullshit right? I tell myself I'm an honest person when I'm not. I'm being manipulative and dishonest in this situation and that situation. This, But I, I tell myself I'm an honest person. Hmm. You're buying your own story there when it's not true. So it does take having a, a good connection with the client in order to do this work. So it's not like when they first walk in, the first thing I'm going to say is confrontation. I'm going to attend to building a steady relationship with them so that we can go into confrontation and challenge and do it really well so they get to learn it for themselves. Yeah. But I also think therapists are often very afraid that if they confront a client, it's going to turn the client off. I cannot tell you the number of people who call me to set up an appointment. They say, I hear you're really direct and I want that. I hear you're a straight shooter. I hear you call people on their bullshit. So, I'm not sure what the story we have 
about, you know, clients can't take it. I'm, I'm not really sure about that. I think we haven't done it well enough. But if we do it well, clients actually are a little bit hungry for it. Well, I think as you're talking about it, so there's this element of distress tolerance. So how is my ego strength as a clinician? How is the ego strength of that client? How are they itself soothing? Because if confrontation in their lives in the past regularly included like the threat of abandonment or the loss of home or food, shelter, whatever, like that's pretty significant. They're going to have a huge physiological response to that threat with you as a clinician, but also this other element of creating an environment, a relationship that can hold that conflict with even just the expectation that it's, that this is a fundamental rule of engagement when you're in relationship with somebody. Um, and I think, I think, you know, I obviously can't speak for every therapist, <laughs> uh, but speaking for myself and, and really thinking about conflict in therapy it is delicate. And I think where we may find ourselves in trouble is where conflict either becomes laden with shame in the way that we're delivering it, or it's laden with shame in the way that it's being received. And that it's then the relationship that needs to hold that to soothe that and understand that, that, um, as I think about it, it's, and I'm curious what your thoughts are. It seems like shame is like a really critical part of this, of confrontation and how we're receiving it and what basically what is the risk to us or to other by being in disagreement, by being uncomfortable, by having dissent. Both sides of that to me are very critical. If there is any communication of shame from me, it's not a useful confrontation. So again, I have to do my own work to be sure that it's very clean from my side, right? There should not be the tiniest shred of shame or blame or criticism in the confrontation that I'm offering. Again, I think of it as an invitation to look at a larger awareness of themselves, right? It's an invitation. So no shame whatsoever. So that part is mine. And I need to, you know, if I need to go to case consultation or supervision or take workshops or something to work that out in myself, that's my homework. So that's that side. Clients who, who have been confronted with shame all wrapped in it, shame is often going to come up for them when I say, well, that's not actually what you said before. They're going to instantly go into shame right? So, but that's the opportunity for me to slow down and sort of untangle that with, the, with them, right? I often say, let's slow down. Let's slow down. I'm not sure how you heard that. Let's talk about that. So it doesn't mean I don't confront. It just means I'm ready to deal with the tangle that might come up because of their history. Again, that's the beauty of the work, right? It's like, let's untangle that. I've got all the time in the world. I don't have an agenda that you agree with me. I really want to be attentive to what comes up for you when you think someone is criticizing you. I'm clear that I wasn't criticizing you, but I hear that that wasn't clear to you. Let's talk about that. And I have to be super present and available for that, for that to help get repaired on their side. Yeah. Not useful for shame, for them to be in shame. So if it comes up, it's an opportunity. Let's Let's untangle that. Let's sort it out. I have all the room in the world for that. Yes. Yeah. 
But but to think, take that one step further. Sorry, to think about that one, to take that one step further, think about the patience and attentiveness and neutrality it takes from me to be present while they're feeling shame because of something I said that we need to get untangled. So I'm just sort of trying to open that up like it's a big moment. Diving a little bit further into this idea of our difficulty with confrontation, can you speak more? I mean, you've spent so many years really in the business of shaping, helping therapists grow, what do you see are like the patterns? I mean, going back to this idea of person-centered, is part of it even a ideological or theoretical conflict where it's like, well, person-centered means we're always in agreement and that we need to always say, yes, we need to be nodding. We need to really to steal your language and, and other language I've heard before on this conversation, cosign their bullshit. Um, that it's like, that's what it means to be person centered. But like, what are the other elements that are contributing to our clinical fear of being like, "Eh, whoa, whoa, hey, I just noticed. (laughs) Like, why do we often lean out and get really afraid of that? (laughs) Mm -hmm. I've seen people lean out also because they're afraid of having that much impact on someone. Um, they think they want it, but when it really comes down to it, they're, they're, I would even say confused about making a bold move as a therapist and having strong impact, which that can go wrong. It can, but I think if you're super conscientious and really present with what's happening, it's unlikely to go wrong. But I see therapists hold back because they're afraid of, let's say, the power of that moment. I want to help them get really comfortable with the power as long as it's really clean power. It's not power over, but it's like, let's include really bold moves in the therapeutic work that we're doing. Um, So I see that be a part of it. I see the lack of familiarity because they didn't get good training. I see their own childhood history be a part of it. I'm just scanning if they see if there's anything else that I see be a part of that. I mean, for some reason, what's coming to mind is some conversations with folks I do case consultation with, where they literally don't see the confrontation, because they don't, they don't sort of have that window open in their in their therapeutic skill set. So the client can say something that to me is clearly like, not accurate about themselves or not authentic, right? And the therapist lets it go. And I'll say, what did you think about when the client said this, that, or the other thing? And they're like, oh, yeah. And I'm, I'm thinking, wait, <laughs> wait, wait, wait. Uh, I'm making an example. A client is saying they want a really good, healthy relationship, but they're choosing people who are, I don't know, uh, involved with addictive processes or alcoholic substance abuse, something like that, and people who have not addressed that and are not very steady, stable So I say, okay, your client just said they really, really want a good relationship. And they're also talking about the fourth person in a row that they've been dating who has these issues. How do you square that? The client, I mean, sorry, the therapist is not even thinking that because they're just taking the client's word for it that they want a steady relationship. So I always, I'm trying to teach them to take in the words, but also match that up with the the behavior that you're seeing right? And it's not that the client's lying. 
that they want a steady relationship. They really, really want a steady relationship. But there's some discrepancy in them that's happening that needs to get addressed, right? There's some draw they feel to people who are involved with substance abuse and who are very unsteady. There's something going on there. There's a discrepancy. And again, no shame about that. We all have those discrepancies. You know, I hope people who are close in my life call me out on things like that. Um, because I just, I don't see it until someone helps me see it. And I think as therapists, you know, we're here to help them see that. But sometimes the therapists themselves are not tracking those discrepancies because they really want to support what the client's saying. I want to support what the client's saying. I just want to bring in the other part of the picture too, you know? I think what you said was was really meaningful. And what I was thinking in what you said at the end was it's kind of like having like spinach in your teeth. And then like you would really like someone <laughs> to have told you before you get home and look in the mirror and go, really? Right. Um, right. I should put that on my business card. I will tell you about the spinach. There's spinach in your teeth. Right. Because when you think about it, truly, if you spent all night at a, an event and you had that spinach-based appetizer two hours before, how many people did you interact with that didn't say something about it? But also there's a big difference in someone saying, hey, you got a little something in your teeth. You know, like you might want to go check it out versus a real shame-based like, oh, look at me, I got it. You know, like someone that's really mocking you and that they're all, I guess, in their own way, kind of a confrontation, but bringing your attention to this thing that's going on that you otherwise really had literally no awareness of. And it would only be someone else telling you until you saw the mirror yourself. And I can yeah. imagine too, the opportunity for a client to have spent, we'll say two years in therapy with somebody who's invested dozens of hours, quite a bit of money, um, quite a bit of soul, and to end that therapeutic relationship for whatever reason, and then years later go, oh my gosh, I, I've been doing this thing for a decade, and somehow we never talked about it. Why is it that I keep choosing partners that are already in relationship with somebody else, or I choose jobs that have a real um, dangerous work ethic that have really kind of been soul sucking for me. And yet I say I want work life balance. Why didn't anybody bring it up? And I can see there, again, that phenomenon of looking in the mirror and going, why didn't anybody tell me? Yeah, I one of the most heartbreaking situations that came up, this was years ago, I was working with a, uh, an individual, a, a man, who was in the middle of divorce proceedings. And I was challenging him about some of the, the patterns in his marriage that he did not look at while he was married. And that I think contributed to the end of his marriage. And he got really quiet at one point and he said, you know, we went to a marriage therapist. I think if we had been talking about this, we would never have gotten divorced. And I thought, oh gosh, you know, that's heartbreaking. Um, and I don't know if the past therapist didn't see it or wasn't attending to it. It was a dynamic that was pretty obvious to me that he was, you know, contributing to the difficulty in his marriage. Um, but I thought that was heartbreaking, you know, that if someone had pointed out the spinach in the teeth earlier, 
it might have saved his marriage. He was very open to what, you know, to the confrontation. He just literally didn't see it. Nobody had pointed it out to him before. And, uh, oh, I thought that was really sad, really sad. So I have tremendous compassion for how hard it is to have someone point out spinach in your teeth. You know, I have compassion for how awkward that is or embarrassing or, you know, it's so vulnerable. But aren't we in the business of helping our clients learn how to tolerate vulnerability, right? And even in this way, you know, I want to help you tolerate the vulnerability of having someone see something about you that you didn't yet see. That's a profoundly vulnerable interaction. And I want to, I want to help them with that. So I have compassion for how vulnerable it is. And I want to give them lots and lots of support for facing that moment of vulnerability where their self-image is taking a hit and having to change to integrate some new information that maybe they either didn't see or were actively trying to hide or, you know, whatever. That's a, that's a big, big moment. I say in, in the videotape that I made about confronting clients, here's the thing you should know. It is no small task to face yourself in new ways. It is no small thing. And as a therapist, I'm very aware and honoring of that. So this part about confronting clients very well, challenging them well, being neutral, supporting their reaction, helping them walk through it and grapple with a larger awareness of themselves, no small thing. This is big work. Going back to that example that you gave with that client, the other thing that occurred to me too is not having been there in the room with that therapist of like, where was he? Where was the partner? Was that confrontation even there? Was it brought up? But there wasn't the capacity in that moment for a client or clients to hear it to process it, which I think speaks to your point earlier, which is kind of like, I don't necessarily have a stake in the game that this is going to work, you know, that suddenly the client's going to go, yes, you're right. Um, and that I think so often with confrontation is the possibility for really just planting very tiny, delicate, gentle seeds, um, and then seeing how time and space might shape them. And I've had that experience with clients where years later, someone will say, you know, you said this one thing and I kicked it out and then it came back and it, you know, something happened much later and I went, whoa. You know, that like it, it, we've just, we're doing our best to create fertile soil. We might put seeds and there's just simply no rain at that moment. So maybe that yeah. former couples therapist did plant the seed and there was no rain to let that idea grow. Um, and at least for me, it's like, well, at least I tried. <laughs> yeah, I agree. That's partly why I'm, I'm happy to move on. Like I, I offer it. And if it's not something you're up for or you don't see it, that's perfectly fine too. I happen to know with that particular client, he was sort of gobsmacked. Like he had never, I really think nobody had ever offered that view of himself before. He really had a moment where he saw something in himself that he had never seen before. So I, I do think that sometimes we offer, I know for a fact, I offer confrontations that the client says no to, and later, either with me or with someone else might say yes to. I've had that happen. Um, I've also had it happen that occasionally I'll offer something that just sort of stuns someone because they just haven't, they just haven't thought of it with that particular lens, right? And they are seeing themselves in a profoundly different way. 
And it could be sometimes in a profoundly good way. I mean, confrontation is not all about negative things. I also confront people about, listen, you're, you're a big hearted person. That's just who you are. Did no one ever even tell you that? And I've had people say no. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I see it was so heartful. I see it was so engaged with people. So to me, that's confrontation too, because it's asking them to enlarge their, their perspective on themselves. And that's a challenge too. So uh, I can think of a client I worked with maybe several months ago where I genuinely saw her as someone with, she is so good. She's so open to connecting and engaging with people. And that is not the feedback she got from her family in any way, shape or form. She was the problem. She was a, a, a bother. She was uh, someone to be sort of rejected and marginalized. So for me to say to her, like, I see you as someone who connects really well with people. She was stunned and she got this shy smile on her face. And I thought, oh, there it is. Like nobody's offered her that reflection before. And it, in my mind, it was completely accurate. Um, she is someone who really connects really, really well, but her family wasn't up for that. So <laughs> she got blamed for her family not being available to that. And she, she believed them. So there's another spin on confrontation is that sometimes we're offering a profoundly positive view. Yeah, that's I think that's a great point that confrontation is not necessarily this thing that is pointing out something that's unpleasant or negative or uncomfortable. It's simply something different than what we had accepted as reality prior. Yeah, a larger awareness of self. So that may include looking at some negative aspects of myself, but it also may include looking at really positive aspects of myself that I just have not been supported before. I want to go back to one of the things you said earlier about kind of relationship and the expectation of, of discomfort and the invitation for that in therapy. Given my uh, clinical documentation nerdiness, I have seen many uh, informed consent form in my day. Um, and many informed consent forms, whether they're occurring, whether this is actually being verbally discussed with a client, I can't say, but that will say part of therapy is sometimes you may feel worse before you feel better. You, you know, effectively, you may not go skipping out of my office, humming a tune and have a little lilt in your step. And there may be times where what we're talking about is really uncomfortable or is difficult for you. And I think part of why we're doing that, and again, whether or not we actually have that conversation, if it's not just a form in electronic health record, I can't say. But the idea behind it, I'm reading as inoculation, a basically, I don't expect that we're always going to get along. I don't expect that I'm going to co-sign you all the time and you're going to co-sign me all the time. I expect that sometimes we're going to have disagreement about the color of the sky, about whether or not it's raining hard, about whether or not that was um, really aggressive the way that you talked with somebody. How do you inoculate clients? And, and you know, so much so is when you're introducing an intervention that involves that confrontation, how do you invite their rejection of it and basically make it okay that they don't feel like they've been pressured into, oh, my, my therapist, a power differential, my therapist said this, therefore it must be true. How do you kind of introduce that concept to allow them space to be like, nah, mm -mm, nope. <laughs> Listen, I front load it almost every time with, you know, 
it's okay if this doesn't feel right to you. I'm, I'll say to clients, literally say to them very frequently, I'm perfectly fine to be wrong. You know, it's, you can tell me that it doesn't fit for you. And I will say that repeatedly to clients because I want to support them to listen to themselves. I don't need to be right. I don't, I, I'm not interested in that. I'm interested in them reckoning with what we're talking about. So, I, I mean, you could talk to my clients and every single one of them will tell you, yeah, she's always telling me it's okay. She's, she can be wrong. I can disagree. And I really say that to them repeatedly up front because I want them to feel full permission to, and, and I do have clients who say, no, that's not, that's, that doesn't really fit. I say, okay, great. So let's shift gears here. And I'm, I'm happy to move on. Um, or I'll say, you're saying it doesn't fit in this way. Does it fit maybe in this way? And I'm, again, I'm, and I'll say, but it's, it's fine if it doesn't, I just want to check. Um, or I'll say to someone, I'm not trying to challenge you about this, but I'm really curious how that felt to you when I said that. So I'll name it as like, I, the, the goal isn't challenge. The goal is to understand you, for me to understand you better. And I'm working hard to do that. So help me with that. So, I mean, that's kind of how I navigate it in my sessions is I just, the picture I keep getting is front loading it uh, with lots and lots of permission to disagree. That's, it's really good. I feel like their, their, my permission to let them disagree helps me really feel free to offer things that seem pertinent. Well, I, I think it's pulling yourself. I don't know if we can actually pull ourselves out of the power differential, but we're kind of poking at it a little bit going, yes, I know it's there. And for now, I'm going to do my best to set it aside and say, yeah, disagree with me. Um, I, I invite your dissent and I can handle your disagreement, which I think goes back to what you're saying about the importance of, of us having a corrective experience in therapy of creating that where, I mean, how many of us have been in work environments or just any environment with power, whether it's a doctor or it's clergy, it's a landlord, it's a boss, whatever, where it's like, well, did you agree with that? Absolutely not. Did you say something? No, I can't. And it's so different than so many relationships where it's like, wait, I, you're saying I can disagree with you. <laughs> right. And let's take it all the way back. How many of us could strongly disagree with mom or dad? when we felt like something was unfair or unjust or not okay or unkind or something like that. I mean, not too many of us grew up in households where we could say, no, that's not right. Or no, I don't feel good about that, you know, and really have that well received and integrated. So the repair is across the board. It's a way that they get to find their voice and find their own authenticity. And I totally am all about that, all about that. How do you work with clients who have come from potentially really neglectful or abusive environments where any kind of conflict is just terrifying? And then if you add on, we'll say neurodivergence to that high sensitivity, how do you essentially start to work that really firm clay to be able to tolerate a little bit more confrontation, a little bit more dissent? Um, because I can see that being really terrifying for a client. Yeah. And so with that kind of potential reactivity, I need to slow way down. 
right? It's not useful for me to come in like gangbusters. When someone's nervous system, for whatever reason, neurodivergence or their family history, when their nervous system is that sensitive, it is not useful for me to come in like a bulldozer. It's so useful for me to keep slowing down. I make sure my voice is really soft. I make sure my speech slows down. I make sure I really, I think of it as putting cushions around it. I make sure they know it's okay to disagree. I'm really happy to back up quickly if I see like they're getting flooded or overwhelmed. So all of that is about me being very attentive to what's going on in the moment with that client. And while it's important to be very authentic and invite them into more authenticity, I need to do it in a way and at a pace that they can integrate. So yes, we're talking about strong confrontations and I'm glad you're bringing up sort of the other end of the spectrum. It's not strong confrontation or no confrontation. There's a wide range there where sometimes actually with clients, I'll bring up very obliquely. You know, I, I won't say, I see you doing this. I'll be like, you know, I wonder sometimes if it feels to you like X, Y, Z. So I'm bringing it up in a very oblique sort of offhanded way that has not, I didn't, I, I didn't put my observation in there at all because maybe that person is not going to be comfortable pushing back with me yet. Right. So I'll just say, yeah, I, I can understand how they saw it that way. How did you see it? So I'm, again, I'm just softening and inviting, slowing down and being direct in an indirect way, if that makes sense. I don't know another way to say it. That I can hear the difference between saying, I notice that when faced with XYZ situation, you tend to blah, 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 versus why do you think you do that thing? I'm like, I, it, this seems to be having, but I don't know. Like that it's like, it's a much more kind of through the side door kind of way of doing it. Yeah. That I think that I think, but even that idea, I think is important for clinicians to give you permission to give us permission that like, again, confrontation doesn't mean like we're banging on the front door trying to knock it down. Like maybe it is like a little gentle knock on the side door and then we walk away for a while. <laughs> yeah. For some people, it's, you know, their nervous systems are sensitive enough that me just hanging out by the door is a confrontation, right? I don't even, I don't even get to knock on it, but they see me getting close to the door that they've guarded and that's enough. I need to just hang around there for a while. I need to be very empathetic for how it matches with their system. Very empathetic for how it lands for them. What about when it doesn't land well? So one of the things you said earlier was if we are in a power struggle in therapy, it is our responsibility as therapists. And so if we try the side door, we're hovering near the edge of the property, we've tried pounding on the front door, whatever it is, and it has not worked. And it it has resulted in what we believe is a relationship fracture. How do you go in and repair with I should note for our listeners, we have some really great content with Dr. Scott Miller and Dr. Daryl Chow and, and folks who are having these conversations. So please take a look at those other episodes. But like, how do you do that repair when you feel like the attempt at confrontation has reverberated in such a way that you're like, whoa, whoa. <laughs> need to correct. When that happens, I feel like I, as the therapist, I need to take 100% responsibility for the rupture and 100% responsibility for the repair. 
And it's up to me to back up and figure out how to do that. And I also trust that even that repair work is important in the in the um, in the client's process, maybe they've never had someone say, "I'm sorry, I think I said that too strongly," or "I'm sorry, I think I was pushing that too too hard for what was useful to you," or "I'm sorry, let's slow down because I think we're getting off track here. We're getting out of sync with each other." So. I take full responsibility if it starts to go south or get off the rails. That's on me. I misread something. I, like I said, I went too fast or I pushed too hard or I didn't hear the resistance in a way that I needed to hear it. So I really want to work that piece as well to slow down and, and bring forward repair from my side for them. And you know, sometimes clients are quite shut down if they feel like they've been uh, pushed too hard or misunderstood. And so I also have to be willing to kind of take on whatever it takes to help repair it. And maybe they're not going to repair it with me. Maybe they're going to leave and go work with somebody else because that was just too upsetting to them. But I'm going to I'm going to give it my very, very best shot at repairing with me. And um I'm going to look at what I, I, you know, what just popped in my head was a client I worked with many, many years ago. And I don't want to go into details, but I want to say I used a word in the therapy that for this particular person was incredibly, not offensive, but just it was off. That word, when I was describing something, I used a word about his process was off. And I saw the look on his face. And I realized like, oh my goodness, I should not have used that word. And so I said to him immediately, I'm so sorry. I see that that was not the right way to say that. I apologize. I wasn't being careful enough. And I said, I want to tell you, I'm going to be very thoughtful about what happened for me that I use that word that I should have known, I should have understood was going to be upsetting to you. So please know I'm going to be thoughtful about that. And, and he said, okay. And he left, he came back the next week. And I said, here's what I can tell you was going on for me. And I, I just described to him, you know, I thought this, and then I did this. And then I thought this, and I'm really sorry. That was, in, that was inappropriate and incorrect. And he got tears in his eyes and he said, thank you so much. Thank you so much for being willing to own that it was off on your side and to be thoughtful about why that happened. And so the repair was actually quite beautiful. I'm still, I still all these years later regret that I dropped the ball right there, but I did. And uh, I wanted him to know that I took it seriously enough to try to understand why I sort of violated something for him right there, you know? Yeah. I thank you um, for your self-disclosure and for sharing that. Um, early, early in my practicum, in a really high stakes situation, I confronted and the person never came back for therapy. And I think so many of us have that story. And it was a, it is awful <laughs> because unlike Paul Mitchell's school for hair, like hair, you know, hair is different than soul being hurt. <laughs> so if you give yeah. somebody a bad haircut while you're in your training, it will grow back. Um, yeah. and, that's one that has stayed with me. And I think many therapists have that story, you know, that I, 
I said this when I should have said that or nothing at all or my body language or whatever. And it just, it feels awful. And to this day, it's like, ugh. And I, and you know, that client didn't come back for therapy. And I think it's because of those stories that it's easy for us to get scared and to not want to confront at all. And then we've basically swung so far into non-confrontation that we also stop, I think we give up some of our effectiveness. And so I think it goes back to that idea of mutual distress tolerance of like, okay, yeah, I, I did this thing before, and I really blew it. What am I learning from that experience so that I can be better the next time around? Um, because that was an awful, awful feeling. <laughs> Oh, no, it's painful when that happens. It's painful. Because I feel I know for myself when that's happened. And, you know, I've been a therapist for more than 40 years. So I don't have just one of those stories, you know, it's painful. And I'm not perfect at this. I'm going to give it my very best shot. I'm going to work so hard for the client. And sometimes I'm going to miss the mark. And I'm going to do my absolute best to learn from that. And I'm so sorry when I drop the ball or misread something with a client and sometimes they don't come back. I'm just really sorry about that. And it happens. It does happen. Well, and I, that kind of comes full circle to that research about the relationship that it, that it's not that the relationship has no conflict. It's the relationship that responds to the conflict and then hopefully has the opportunity to do repair and to learn from it and move forward. And so I think that's part of it is like for us clinically to sit with, okay, it doesn't mean that I'm always going to see eye to eye with you. And even I, like you, I try to front load like it. And because I'm such a feedback informed treatment nerd, <laughs> like I front load hard where it's like, I'm going to check in with you. We're going to be doing these measures and we're going to have conversations about how I'm doing. And like, basically I, what I say is like, I view myself as your chef. And if I'm, if my chicken is too salty, like I need to know about it or like, I'm going to keep serving you an entree that you don't like. And then we have a problem. Um, so it's the expectation, like I'm going to get it wrong because what may taste good to me doesn't mean it's going to taste good to you. But I, but even then, for me as a therapist, it took years for me to get to not only the understanding of like what this research meant, but then how does it carry out in therapy? And then whatever personal factors I'm bringing into the room around my own vulnerability in that particular moment with that particular client and hello, countertransference. Like these are, we're talking about this in some ways, trying to simplify it while these are simultaneously very, very complex concepts. So complex, so complex. All those layers you just named, you know, countertransference and our skill level and our understanding of it. And to be really honest, we can't learn all that theoretically. We're learning it as we practice. And that's really hard and humbling. And that's how I teach myself to confront strongly with some graciousness and empathy is by actually doing it and missing the mark. Like that, that is how we learn this. So we can stuff all the theory and research in our heads, but we got to also see how it feels in the room. So it's, yeah, it's important. It's very important. One of my mentors used to say, um, in terms of dealing with, you know, confrontation and also giving clients feedback and stuff, he said, you always want to stand just behind them 
just a half a stop behind them, pointing out, did you, what about this? Do you want to go that way? What about over there? You don't want to be in front of them, sort of trying to pull them forward and get them to come to where you are. And I, I mean, he said that to me in my internship, which is 40 something years ago, I still remember that so clearly. And I still have that image when I'm working with clients of being really careful to stay just a half a step behind them, sort of inviting and pointing things out, but not trying to drag them into the way that I see things. Yeah, not not trying to really live in and almost exploit that power differential. Um, Elizabeth, we could keep talking on this because I think there's so much here. And I'm, I'm grateful for you and spending this time with us. What resources do you recommend to listeners who want to start to kind of work the edge of their tolerance for confrontation and its place in therapy? You mentioned like you have some resources on your website. Um, What are other things that you find are really helpful, like particular models, books, websites? How do you kind of conceptualize this? The models that I find the most useful is uh, using a differentiation lens, because that lens is all about outgrowing what we learned or integrated in our families and really coming to define ourselves differently and giving ourselves permission to be different than how our families maybe viewed us. So I use that differentiation lens a lot and people can look that up. It's really common uh, in family systems theory. Um, And I also think there's a book by Resma Menachem who he wrote My Grandmother's Hands, but he also wrote a book called Rock the Boat. And it's about how conflict in relationship is actually really uh, an important way to grow. And I've offered that to a lot of clients and they find it very useful. And yeah, like you mentioned, I do have a videotape on my website, HaneyConsulting.net, that uh, talks about the nuances of confronting clients. So that's there and other videotapes about other aspects of developing our clinical skills. So yeah, those are all. And if people want to reach out to me directly, my email is ehaneyconsulting. So that's E-H-E-A-N-E-Y consulting at gmail.com. Thank you so much, Elizabeth. As we're winding up this interview, I'm really hearing basically this parallel process that has taken place in this conversation, as you're saying as a therapist, you know, we need to give ourselves permission to get it wrong. And then we're carrying it forward into what we're doing with our clients, and then hopefully carrying it forward into the client's lives that they're giving themselves permission to get it wrong. There's just this multiple process that's happening. And I'm really glad that it unfolded this way. Um, Thank you. Thank you for having such a rich conversation with me. I'm grateful to have had this time with you. Thank you, Beth. Thank you for having me. And I absolutely loved having the conversation. Thank you so much. You've just finished listening to another exclusive continuing ed podcast by Clearly Clinical. If you like what you just heard and you need continuing ed credits, please visit us at clearlyclinical.com to check out our one-year membership, where you'll have access to our growing library of continuing ed podcast courses. Clearly Clinical, where our goal is to help you learn, grow, and shine.